and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Thank you. Well, today is not a standalone sermon. It's actually part two of the sermon that was preached two weeks ago, where we started, uh, where we looked at the Armor of God passage in Ephesians chapter 6, just before what was read today. And just uh, to bring us up to speed, we're going to do a little pop quiz on that sermon. So, and see how much you remember from then. Uh, which of these is not part of the Armor of God? A shield of faith? The belt of truth, or the taser of postmillennialism? <laughs> taser of postmillennialism, there you go. Next question Who wrote Ephesians? Was it John, Paul, George, or Ringo? It was Paul. Okay, those were just for fun. All right. What is the fundamental theme of the book of Ephesians? Is it A, the supremacy of Jesus? Is it B, reconciled relationships with God and each other in Christ? Is it C, belief in Jesus, the Son of God, or D, faith and character when suffering as a Christian? Two, Two reconciled relationships. That's right. The other ones, by the way, are Hebrews and John and First Peter, respectively. Uh, question four, by whom is the armor of God to be worn? The Christian or, for the, or the church? The church. There you go. Number five. We are armed against the devil and his spiritual forces of evil. What are they up to in the context of Ephesians? That we need this armor for our defense. Are they trying to destroy our unity in Christ? Trying to tempt each of us to personal sin? Or trying to cause us to doubt God? Number one, absolutely. Were you in the front row last time too? You know all the answers. That's great. We put God's armor on by A, memorizing this passage and saying it regularly. B, trusting in the truth of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 and putting into practice Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. C, praying on the armor every day. Two, there you are. Last question. In terms of guarding our unity against the attacks of the devil, this text that we've read today calls us to A, be strong in the Lord. B, be armed. C, stand firm. D, be alert or all of the above, and it is all of the above, absolutely. We have seen through the book of Ephesians so far that God's great work is to reconcile people in Christ, reconciling estranged sinners to himself, and rec reconciling different, even hostile people to each other. And so God in Christ creates the church, who is God's family, and are thus united. Each Christian... Jew or Gentile, old or young, male or female, rich or poor, each Christian has God for a father, and therefore each one of us, without exception, calls every other Christian, without exception, brother or sister. 
It's a pretty incredible vision. One people, God's own people. And according to Ephesians, it's not just that it's possible because of what Christ has done, but Jesus is actually the location, the center, the one in whom God is doing this great work. Jesus is the head of the body of the church, which is his body. There's a real, there's an organic, a life-giving connection. We are in Christ, it says. And this formation of one people united in Christ and therefore sharing Christ's special status as God's beloved child has been God's eternal purpose from since before the creation of the world. And more than that, it is actually the means by which God will glorify himself in eternity in the spiritual realm. Do we have any idea that this is our place in history and in the universe? This is the reality that God reveals to us in the book of Ephesians. And if this is God's great agenda, then it follows that Satan's great agenda is to try to derail it, to separate what God has joined together. And so, yes, Satan's attacks are primarily for our disunity. And it's precisely for this reason that we are called to put on the armor of God and to stand against the evil one, and to make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This is a unity worth going to battle for. And so we need God's armor. And this is what we have seen in Ephesians so far, and especially two weeks ago. But Paul, in this passage, doesn't just talk about armor. Okay, we're not merely to bear up under the blows of the evil one. We're actually called to strike some blows ourselves. Not just to stand or withstand, but also to resist, to to push back. And so we have not only protective armor, but also weapons. And Paul here names two of them, the scripture and prayer. He says, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And that's where we'll devote our attention today. Christians have always known the central place of prayer and the scripture in the Christian life. We sang as kids, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. We have recognized that the reality of prayer, that without the reality of prayer, our relationship with God weakens. We know that the Bible is God's word, okay, the authority on which we base our belief and our practice. It's the food by which we nourish our spiritual life. None of this is new information. But how many of us have understood, I wonder, scripture and prayer in the context of battle? That's the context that Paul highlights them here, the framework of battle. How many of us consider scripture and prayer as weapons with power? How many of us in our own approach to prayer and scripture recognize that these practices are not just about my own spiritual development, but about the very survival of the church? Because that's what's in view here in Ephesians chapter 6. And so the disciplines of prayer and scripture are not just spiritual disciplines for, for personal spiritual training. Consider the difference between two people who spend extraordinary time learning how to use a rifle. One of them is an Olympic athlete, hoping to be good enough with his weapon to win a gold medal, hoping that people around the world someday will say, what a great marksman. The other person is a soldier who knows that if he or she falters with her weapon, she or somebody else in her unit might die and the enemy move forward. We often think of our disciplines like the first person, 
that it advances us to the podium spiritually, that skill in these exercises is the goal itself. Paul suggests it's more like the second person, training for combat, that scripture and prayer are the essential weaponry in the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in. And in the cut and thrust of hand-to-hand combat, with the smell of sweat and dust and hearing the hiss and snarl of our spiritual enemy, we had better know how to fight. And if Satan and his forces are armed and dangerous, then the church had better be more so. Now you know what this means, of course. It means that if ever we feel like our unity is threatened or beginning to weaken, then we don't address it primarily by having a retreat or more meals together. Okay? We do want to spend more time together and in fact are creating opportunities to do that. But we don't rely on those things. We rely on scripture and prayer. Okay? The revealed word of God to the church and our communion with God together in prayer. And notice in this text that these are spiritual weapons. That it is the sword of the spirit meaning the Holy Spirit of God, and that we are called to pray in the Spirit. We have not only to put on the armor of God, but to take up the weapons of God as well. And since our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil, then our weapons need to be spiritual weapons. Weapons that have spiritual power. Weapons whose use is felt in the spiritual world in which we in fact live. So let's consider these two weapons for a moment. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now understanding that there is a fierce and sustained attack of the devil on the unity of the church, what if you found out that God himself had fashioned a weapon for you to use? Would you want it? Or would you try to find some other more effective weapon? Even just to frame the question like that, it's silly, isn't it? Well, God has fashioned a weapon perfectly suited for our use to pierce and to wound the enemy, and it's the sword of the Holy Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit. The Spirit inspired it, wrote it, as it were. The scripture says that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretations, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And as the sword of the Spirit, then, it is appropriate that we wield it to guard the unity of the Spirit. And what a sword it is. The Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And if you have any doubt about that, you remember Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon to the crowds at Pentecost. He proclaimed the word of God concerning the divine sonship and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and his saving power. And what was the response of the crowd? They weren't persuaded. They weren't convinced. They weren't moved. Do you remember? They were cut. They were cut to the heart. There is a power in the word of God unlike anything that you can imagine. And just as it has the cutting power to bring conviction and repentance, so it has the power to stab and inflict mortal blows on the enemy. 
It doesn't just have divine authority. It has the divine power to enforce its authority. Now, where does that power lie in the word of God? It lies in the fact that God's word is truth. When Jesus prayed for his disciples in John chapter 17, in the context of seeking their protection against the evil one, Jesus said, sanctify them or set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is eternal truth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And that's what makes it an effective weapon in the spiritual battle. Because what is Satan's primary weapon? Deceit. It's lies. He is a liar. This is what Jesus said of him. He has nothing to do with the truth because there is not truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. Now think about that for a second. What lies at the heart of all disunity in the church? Deceit. All discord, all estrangement, all disunity that has ever happened in the church of Jesus anywhere at any time, all of it has come about because someone has believed something that was not true. No exceptions. At the heart of all discord in the church, either between individuals or corporately, lies a lie. Now, whether that's discord on the scale of the violence between Catholics and Protestants during the Reformation, burning at the stake, and so on, or whether it's just the relational disunity between one or two, or between two people or three, the lie that is believed is always some variation of this untruth, that I have a right to think and to act as I do, or as we do together. Individually, it's when we believe the falsehood that I have the right to hold on to my anger, or that I have the right to feel offended, or that I have the right to have my way, or that I have the right to speak or think of someone unkindly. That when I share my concerns, it's not gossip. That it's okay for me to not forgive until I'm ready. Even though the Bible explicitly says that if somebody has sinned against me, I need to go to that person, or if I know that someone thinks that I've sinned against them, that I need to go and make it right. And if I know that, and nevertheless, I, don't, I feel like I don't need to initiate conversation with that person, that it's okay to just avoid them or to hold on to my own sense of being treated badly. That's believing a lie. And I, I challenge you to think of even one situation of relational disunity between Christians which does not find its root in someone believing something that is not true. The devil and his forces scheme and attack the unity of the church of Jesus Christ, and his primary weapon is the lie. To Eve, he said, did God say A? I say, not A. Eve believed his lie, and the relationship with God was broken. Lies bring separation. And the sword of the Spirit against the enemy who is a liar, the Word of God is our weapon. The Word is truth. The Bible calls him the Spirit of truth. And here's the question, though. How do we actually wield the sword? 
It's easy for me to say the Bible is our weapon in the spiritual battle. Well, that's, that's abstract. How do we actually become proficient in the use of this sword? Well, it presupposes, first of all, familiarity with the sword. In the heat of battle is the wrong time to begin to learn how to use your weapon. That knowledge needs to be there when you need it. And at risk of reducing something to a to-do kind of job, the truth is that there is no substitute for reading and rereading and learning the scripture. Okay, that's true, of course, in our own spiritual health and growth. If you are spiritually dry right now or apathetic and you are not in the scripture, the very first thing you need to do is go to the scripture. It doesn't mean that reading the scripture guarantees an immediate increase in spiritual vitality, but I do know that won't happen without the scripture. No one who doesn't read the scripture grows in their life in Christ. No one. To wait for inspiration before reading the scripture is like saying, I feel so weak, but even though I haven't eaten for seven days, I'll wait till I'm a little stronger before taking in some food. For our own spiritual health, a steady diet of God's word is essential. And how much more so then when we're called to defend the unity of the church with the word of God. My own personal practice is to try to read through the scripture once a year. I use a chart to track my progress and I put a bunch of these out. There's got a lot of things to pick up today when you leave here, but there's some of these if you're interested in that. Now, it's not to say that every time I read the scripture that God speaks to me directly or that there's some inspiration that I get. Not at all. In fact, by a lot of people's standards, they would find my reading in the scripture uh, a relatively dry affair, probably. But having read through the Bible a number of times, there is no question in my own mind that the Bible, more than any other single factor, has formed my character and has formed my faith. And I don't always notice it in the moment, but it has. And my increasing familiarity with the scripture informs my values, my decisions, my leadership, my worldview, my parenting. And familiarity only comes by regularly reading or listening or studying the scriptures with others. There is no other way. Are you in the scriptures? But being familiar with it, then how do we use it? Because it's not just familiarity with the scripture or the regular practice of reading it that has value in itself. Again, think of the two people getting proficient in their use of the rifle. One for competition, one for battle. How do we use the scripture in battle? By living it in the moment. A good swordsman is not somebody who has memorized Ephesians. A good swordsman is somebody who chooses to forgive someone because she herself has been forgiven in Christ. I am not a good swordsman because I've read through the scripture and I'm familiar with it. I'm not a good swordsman because I've now preached through Ephesians and I'm familiar with it. I'm a good swordsman if my life is shaped by the fact that I'm a child of God, that I'm saved by grace and I'm therefore no better than anybody else. I'm a good swordsman if I choose to love my wife as Christ loved the church and if I speak the truth in love. That's what makes one a good swordsman. And that's how we wield the sword of the Spirit. So when Satan stabs us with the knowledge that we've been wronged, we parry with God's word. Jesus left, it, left us an example that we should follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. 
Take the log out of your own eye before trying to help your brother take the speck out of his. If a brother sins against you, don't go tell someone else about it, but go show him his fault. When Satan tells you that you have a right to be angry, Scripture says, in your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. When you find yourself thinking that you're unable to forgive or just not ready to forgive, remember that this is a lie. That God's word says, forgive as you've been forgiven. And that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And as long as unforgiveness exists, unity does not. When you find yourself judging or thinking critically about someone, recall that the word of God says, judge not lest you be judged. And consider others better than yourselves. We wield the sword of the Spirit. We wield the Word of God by living it consciously and specifically. And we only do that as we know what it says. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, however, is not the only weapon given to us. Its counterpart is prayer. And these two have always been inseparably linked. Prayer and Scripture go together like hydrogen and oxygen in water. Now, the absence of prayer, hear this, the absence of prayer does not dull the Scripture, but it dulls our senses to the Scriptures. It doesn't make the Scripture any less of a sword, but it lessens our ability to wield it effectively. I remember this idea of prayer as a weapon hitting home to me some years ago. And I was reading in the book of Daniel, and I've actually preached on this a couple of times over the years. In Daniel chapter 10, we have Daniel humbling himself before God through mourning and fasting in a posture of prayer, apparently seeking an explanation of a vision that he's received. And we read there in Daniel 10, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. So three weeks of mourning and fasting and seeking God. And then in response to this, an angel comes to him and says, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to help you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. Did you notice that? From the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I've come because of your words. God is anxious and willing to answer the prayers of his people. But even though the answer was given immediately, its arrival depended on the outcome of a battle fought in the spiritual realm between the angelic messenger, helped by the angel Michael, called here a prince, and the prince of Persia. For 21 days, the battle was fought. For three weeks, Daniel fasted and sought God. And we're left to wonder what might have happened if Daniel fasted for two weeks or one week. It seems to me like Daniel's prayer and fasting was a part of the battle that was going on. Bill Wilson was a missionary to children in New York City, and he said, prayer doesn't give us strength for the battle. Prayer is the battle. And the Apostle Peter makes this link between prayer and the unity of the church when he writes this. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 
Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And in the next chapter, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Be sober-minded, for you have an enemy. Be sober-minded so you can pray and love each other. And that's how it is here in Ephesians 2. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And the NIV translation has a new sentence beginning in verse 18, and pray in the Spirit. And a new paragraph beginning in verse 19, pray also for me. But in fact, this is all one sentence. Taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and praying at all times in the Spirit, and praying also for me, says Paul, it's all one sentence. It's all part and parcel of the same thing. Wielding the Word of God in the context of constant alert prayer. Holding the sword of the Spirit while continually praying in the Spirit. So again, of course, we ask, well, how do we put this weapon into play? Well, in the context of Ephesians 6, essentially by praying together as God's people. Praying for each other, for all the saints, verse 18. Praising God together for the realities revealed in his word and experienced by us. And interceding for the church together. Because I think that what is needed is less our praying for unity and more our uniting in prayer. There are ladies who meet here every Monday morning and pray for the church and for people in the church. Ladies, consider joining them. If you are in a life group, consider making prayer for the church an intentional part of your every meeting. On regular Sundays these days, I've asked the church to pray for the church. In our times of prayer on Sunday morning, let's do that. Pray together for the church. Unite in prayer. In your families, when you pray together, or if you pray with your kids when you put them to bed, pray for the church and for people in the church. And here again is where familiarity with the Scripture is essential to effective prayer. For it's in the Scripture that God's will for the church is revealed, so we can pray confidently in His will for the church. Praying the Scripture is powerful. Praying Ephesians... Pray that we as a church will stand firm against the attacks of the evil one. Pray that we, being rooted and established in love, would together know the love of Christ and grow into fullness. Pray that we would have the eyes of our hearts open and be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation in order to know God better. Pray that we will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That we would be quick to forgive each other. We would be increasingly conscious of our being made one in Christ. And so on. We pray the scriptures when we pray those things. That's how we pray with power. But it takes intention for us to pray effectively. Now, if you were Satan, and you wanted to destroy the unity of the church, what would you do? I know what I would do. I would try to undermine the scripture and tell the church that we don't really need it. Maybe that books about the scripture are better than the scripture itself. Or that unless I feel like reading it, I'd better not. I'd try to distract the church from the practice of prayer, and especially praying together, 
too busy, too boring, too awkward. And I would sow conflict through deceit. In other words, I'd try to start a fire while neutralizing the means by which we could fight the fire. One last thing for us to consider this morning, and that is that here too, as in every facet of Christian faith and experience, it is all about Jesus. The sword of the Spirit, the Scripture, is all about Jesus. It is from Jesus. It's about Jesus. Concerning the Scriptures, Peter writes that it was the Spirit of Christ in the prophets who was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. His own Spirit predicting his own life. Jesus walked his disciples through the whole Old Testament, the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, and he showed them that what was written there was written about him. He said that the scriptures testified to himself. The Bible is the book of Jesus. It is the truth. He said, I am the truth. And prayer is through him. We pray in his name. It is in him that we approach confidently the throne of God. It is in Christ that we stand in this grace that we find ourselves in. It is in Christ that we are God's children and therefore have God's ear. And the truth very simply is that in scripture and prayer, we know Jesus together and we stand together against the evil one. It happens no other way. In scripture and prayer, if scripture and prayer is, sorry, in scripture and prayer is Jesus kept our conscious center. And only as Jesus is our conscious center in all that we are and do as a church can we possibly hope to stand firm and repel the attacks of the evil one. This summer we have walked now through the book of Ephesians and this is now the end. And I hope, I trust that, that the word of God in this book has not only fed us and inspired us, but has shaped us and convicted us, has formed us to be the people of God and the corporate body of Christ. That the truth of his word in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and the practice of it in Ephesians 4 and 5 and 6, and especially what we've talked about these last couple of Sundays, would shape our life together as a church and as the people of God. If the Bible is about Christ, certainly Ephesians is all about our being in Christ and that God has reconciled us to himself and to each other in Christ. As God's word nourishes and teaches us, may he, may he be glorified as we fix our eyes and our hearts and our lives on him in all that we do. We exist, we have said, to know Christ and to make him known. Let us do that as a body bound together in Christ. Amen. Let's pray.